We've got a man on the run at the outpost, and the nuns dealing with some past lives. I'm Van Connor. And I'm Adam Ball, and this is Off Screen, your seven-day guide to everything movies. Boom. Groovy. Right then, welcome back to the show. We've got a load of brand new movies to talk about this time round. Um, so we're going to start with one, and I'm laughing because... I did a bit of research before we recorded this. Yeah. How many other films with this title did you go through before? <laughs> yeah. There were quite a few. Now, it's, um, like, it's like calling a movie Revenge, isn't it? There's so many with this title. I did notice that. Another thing I noticed was there was this one comment that stood out. Go on. And I'm going to read it. Okay. It says, Not sure why anyone would write this or produce this crap. Did I mention how bad it was? Well, it was freaking awful. So, I'm hoping you disagree with that, and it's called I, Outpost. I heartily disagree with that. Okay, first of all, I was actually looking forward to this in one sense because you know I have this thing about comedians doing horror movies. Yeah, and we've, we've mentioned it before. Like comedians do turn out to be strangely good horror makers. Like uh, Bill Hader. Bill Hader will inevitably win an Oscar five to ten years from now for filmmaking. Odds are he'll do a horror movie or a crime thriller or something like that. This is Joe Latrulio. From Brooklyn Nine Nine, do you watch Brooklyn Nine Nine? No, no, never ever seen it in my entire life. Uh, did you ever see I Love You, Man? Yes, I did see that. You, you know the guy who can't chant at the football, who gets yes. ridiculously high. Him, that's Joe Latrulio. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, I know who you mean. Absolutely steals the show in Brooklyn Nine Nine, which I can't believe you've not watched Brooklyn Nine. You bloody love Brooklyn Nine Nine. It's right up your alley. You, you, Again, you just... something else that yeah that I should watch, but I haven't watched. Isn't that where that phrase comes from? Um, oh, what is it? What people say now? Noise, toits, noise, noise. That's noise. it. Noise. Um, yes. For the most part, yeah. I think Kim Peel did it first, but yeah, it seems to stem mostly from Brooklyn Nine. Toit is another one, or Nine Nine is, is is another one. Um, <laughs> Brooklyn Nine Nine is is one of the. I mean, my personal favorite Brooklyn Nine Nine is always going to be Vindication, but because uh, I'm, I'm a big Andre Brower fan. Anyway, beside the point. Uh, Joe Latrulio was the scene stealer in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He's now uh, written and directed his sort of debut feature. So it's called Outpost, one of the most generic titles for a movie ever, as you, you point out. I mean, yep. I, I kept mentioning this to friends during the week, and they were like, is that the World War II thing with Andy Serkis? I'm like, that was a decade ago. This is a different one. So this uh, stars, uh, I think it's Beth Dallas, who I couldn't place at first. It turns out she's from uh, Orange is the New Black. She is actually Joe Latrulio's wife. It, it transpires. And she plays a young woman who survived a really brutal assault, is suffering from, you know, trauma, PTSD, stemming from said assault, and kind of just needs to get away and clear her head. So, for the, in order to uh, pass the summer, she gets, she, she, she pulls some strings with some friends, friend of a friend, her friend's brother, for instance, gets a gig in basically manning an outpost, like a fire watch outpost. You know when, when you've got the, the redwood forests in America and you've got the, the big treetops, you've got the big wooden cabins that overlook them all. They basically sit up there and keep their eye out for a fire, for like a wildfire or anything like that. That's her job. She's there for three months on her own, you know, put your feet up, read a book, just keep an eye out for a fire and radio it in when it comes. But no sooner has she arrived, then through a combination of her own trauma and just the isolation of it, something just ain't quite right. And all of the grimly gremlins in the back of her head start to fire up and 
Yeah, it's a paranoia thriller to the nth degree. I've got a clip, clip for you. This is uh, Beth Dallas just showing up at the outpost and basically being shown the lay of the land. So, you got no water, Wi-Fi, or plumbing, but you got electricity. Like I said, the heater's right there and the wood stove if you need it. Okay, and the garbage? No, Hal at the store lets us dump it in the back of his truck. Kate, you okay? Yeah. Routine is key. Your head needs that. Three months is a long time. So, be on that radio seven sharp. Scope, lunch, second report, supper, maybe a book, then bed, rinse and repeat. Stick to the routine. Stick to the routine. Is that an actual real job in the States or has it been made up just for the movie? No, no, no. This is this is a real a real position. I mean, there's a lot wow. of these sort of infrastructure type positions in the US that are run quite voluntary. Look at people that patrol the border, for instance, things like that. Like these are basically just enthusiasts. Um, this is really good. I don't like that comment you were reading the the review blog. I don't know where the hell I came from because they they sure as hell weren't watching the same movie I was. Uh, first first and foremost, nice tight and tidy eighty four minute horror chiller. Like I liked Ooh. that. Ooh, yeah. 84 minutes, you spoil me, Joe. Um, <laughs> I really like this. The performance <laughs> from Beth Dallas is terrific. Uh, Atto Edno, uh, you could hear in the clip there as the as the sheriff. I think he's a friend's uh, older brother. Uh, good performance as well. Um, in there as well, so you've got Dallas Roberts as another one of the sheriffs. And, uh, oh, God, what's his Dylan Baker. I always get tried. I get Dylan Baker and Bruce Greenwood confused and the reason i do that is because they played brothers they played kennedy's in the it was it nine days or six days the costner cuban missile crisis costner directed cuban missile crisis film. they played the kennedy brothers and i've gotten them confused ever since it's a weird right thing. but uh, yeah um uh, dylan baker i think most know people as, as professor connors from those tobey Maguire spider-man movies really good as well there is a wonderful use of suspense, and there's a wonderful building of suspense, but a use of intrigue around that. Um, the, the way that they play the threat in this, the way that it could go so many different ways, that when it throws its hammer down, as I like to say, um, the, the, you're not disappointed. It, say, there's only was one of three ways this story is really going to go. You know that it's, it's only going down one of three avenues, and you're not disappointed when you discover which one it is. It's not particularly the most imaginative one, but it's a really solidly done, well-executed and pacey horror-tinged thriller that I do think deals really well with this woman's trauma. The way that that trauma is visualized, realized, brought to the screen is very engaging. It's very suspenseful. And you, you, there are times when you, you look at how she deals with it and, you, you, and you, you get it. You're like, I get how this is encroaching on her entire life because we feel it's palpable through that screen. And it is down to, I think, a tight writing, really great direction from Latrude. I did not know he had this in it. This is just not, this is gorgeous looking film. Uh, but that performance uh, by, by uh, Beth Dover, I think it's really, really good. Uh, really solid performance. I, I would recommend this. It's, I say, it crapped up on, I think it was released on digital on Monday. Um, didn't, uh, it came out a few months ago in the US and got some low key traction around the festival circuit. Wasn't really, uh, you know, in, in wasn't really much of an enthusiastic hype around it opening here, which I think is a shame, because I think you are missing out on something really solid. It's a movie that, in terms of its business sort of acumen, is, is just going to wind up as like a Sky Cinema purchase, you know, like three to six months from now, like it's a Sky Cinema premiere. Yeah. It's, done. So it's that day's premiere on Now TV. But 
I think when you do watch it under those circumstances, you will be blown away by it. I think you'd be like, oh, actually, that was really good. Yeah, I like that. Uh, in terms of the outpost itself as well, while you were asking about this, the, the same outpost came up a lot in that Angelina Fire thriller we released, uh, we reviewed a couple of years ago, um, Those Who Want Me Dead. Where Angelina was yeah. the firefighter trying to rescue the kid. But the outpost features quite heavily in that as well. So it is quite a staple of US firefighter infrastructure, particularly in like forest settings. But uh, it really just breathtakingly shot. This outpost just atop all, you know, this, this wilderness is just absolutely stunning to behold. I really, really enjoyed this. So a thriller with loads of jumpy bits, etc. Mm. Gore level, not much gore in this. I'm imagining it's more psychological from what you've said. Actually, there is some gore. There's some gore in this. When yes. they go there, they go there. Yeah, this this can get grisly. I mean, believe me, it, it gets there at times. There's some there's some grizzle in this. There's some grizzle going on. It's, it, it doesn't hold back. That's what you want. It sounds like it's got everything going for it and not too long as well, which, as you and I both say, you know, is the perfect, one of the perfect ingredients to a good movie. So you're not sat there waiting for it to finish. Um, but that was out on digital on Monday, you said, didn't you? That was out on digital this past Monday, so it was out now on digital. Brilliant. Well, if you want to go uh, go and see it, you don't need to leave the house. You can watch it from your sofa, Outpost, which is out now. Right, we are going to talk about past lives in a moment and also The Nun 2 still to come as well. We'll see what Van thought of those in just a bit. Stay right where you are. Hello and welcome back to the show. Let's have a little chat then about past lives, Van. Talk to me about this. Where Where is this set? I think it's South Korea, isn't it? I think it starts in South Korea and then moves to uh, New York. Right. Uh, this This is a new movie from Celine Song, uh, writer-director Celine Song, who I think cut her teeth uh, directing episodes of The Wheel of Time, which I've, I've not seen any of. Is that on Amazon? I think that's Amazon, The Wheel of Time. I've, I've not watched it is, any of yeah. Yeah, there's too many of these fantasy shows now. I've not watched any of the Lord of the Rings one either. Don't at me. You know what I mean? It's like, who <laughs> has the time? You can barely keep up with all the Star Wars shows they keep cranking out. I mean, at least we don't get a Marvel one every six months now. But yeah, so Celine Song has written and directed this. And it stars uh, Greta Lee, who's become a bit of a, 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 bit of a, a, a frequent face in recent years. I mean, I remember her um, I remember her as the nail technician in Sisters back in 2015, 2016, a movie my ex-girlfriend loved. I'd watched that movie endlessly. And uh, I remember that character in particular, she was very funny. Um, so Greta Lee, nice to see her about. I, I tend to think of her as more of a comedic actress. This is much more of a serious role. So it's, uh, Greta, it's Greta Lee and uh, T.O. Yu, I think his name is. They the movie starts off with them as young children growing up in South Korea. Uh, they are separated as the years go by. You know their parents move move him. I think I move him or her. They get separated by you know families moving and things like that. But they are you know each other's like childhood first love. And years later they get back in touch. And it sort of falls apart. And then they, they get back in touch again and they actually spend time together in person. It is about this unspoken, not even unspoken, this outright love story that exists between these two people who, as I say, start out as childhood first loves and rekindle it as the years go by. You can imagine this was somewhat triggering for me, obviously, knowing me personally, you can you can probably stem yeah, me yeah. from some triggering elements in this one for me. Um, I've got, but all centres around this idea as well of uh, something called Inyun, which is, uh, I, I think, a, a, an ancient belief that uh, lovers had a connection in previous lives. You'll hear more about that in this clip. It's an inyon. 
if two strangers even walk by each other in the street and their clothes accidentally brush. Because it means there must have been something between them in their past lives. If two people get married, they say it's because there have been 8,000 layers of Inyan, over 8,000 lifetimes. My clothes brush past everybody I meet in the street, generally because they can't get past me without it happening. I'm a big guy. <laughs> but I mean, I do like the, the, the romance in this. I do like that, that kind of thinking. I, it's, it's kind of, um, I guess it's reassuring, isn't it? Well, I mean, this is a romance in more or less the same way, to an extent, that uh, something like Lost in Translation is. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a soulful romance rather yeah. than any kind of a physical thing or anything like that, or any kind of chase thing. Um, really great performances, like terrific performances, uh, particularly Greta Lee. And so, that, I mean, I'm, as I say, I'm used to seeing her in comedies. And, you know, com com comedic performers tend to lend themselves quite naturally to drama. We need only glance in the direction of the late, great Robin Williams to know that that's been proven time and memorial now yeah uh say great performance there Tio Jung as well um i thought it was really good uh my uh, favorite though out of all this i need to look at why i know the guy from uh john magaro who plays uh nora uh, greta lee's uh, husband in this who i know from um i think i know him from overlord but i want to check i think he's in mad men or something i feel like he's got to have been in mad men or something like that. he was the young silvio apparently in many saints of newark for the sopranos fans well, he plays the sort of put-upon husband, and it's it's a really difficult role to play this one because you are the barrier to these two characters. You are, you are the obstacle. You are the obstacle to these two characters. But he manages to play it with such sympathy, with such a, a, a level of heartfelt gravitas, a, a, sort of, a very subtle gravitas as well, but it, it's heartfelt in a way that you, you do feel for him. And... They kind of all appreciate the awkwardness of the situation, but the way that he plays it, I think, is that that's he's my MVP in this. Having said that, I don't want to take anything away from Greta Lee, who I think is superb, but this is Celine Song's bag, baby. And oh my god, like what an effort! Like I say, for the uh, this is gonna go down gangbusters with the uh, Lost in Translation crowd, uh, j just because of that, that relationship. And I think it is something that's the closest thing I can think to compare it to, in that it's. It's a love story, but not quite the conventional way, if you know what I mean. And it is about that. It's that connection of souls. It is the inyon, as we say, as, as the film goes, as the film goes. I really I really fell for this. I thought it was really well captured. I thought that the script expl explored the relationship, the dynamics, the love between these two characters really, really well. And, uh, and you know, it wasn't too on the nose. So I wasn't a broken, blubbering mess by the time I got to the end of the story, which was... <laughs> Well, obviously we mentioned, or I mentioned, about them kind of being in South Korea for some of this movie. It, just checking here, is it all in English? Uh, no, no, there, there are prolonged sections, obviously, that are subtitled. There okay. Are, you know, there are entire sections that are just, you know, uh, Korean language conversations. For instance, for them to actually open up, you know, honestly, with intimacy, e even in front of uh, John Magaro's character, in front of the husband, like, he gives them his tacit permission, like, you know, just speak your native tongue it's fine it's, I can understand some it's fine you, you guys go nuts and we have those very intimate very profound conversations those actually do tend to be in Korean you tend to find that the uh, the only real intimacy that gets verbalized in English tends to be between Nora and, and 
husband, John Magara's character. Uh, but I, I just, I, I was I'd say just really moved by it. I say it wasn't a blubbering mess, but I was profoundly moved by it. And I think a, a, a great effort from Celine Song. What's its length on this one? Is it a, is it a long one or a num bum yeah. time? Yeah, it, it pushes it a little bit, 105 minutes. I mean, I could I could have clipped a good five to ten out of this, but this is going for the indie crowd. You know, what I mean, we're not doing this for pacing. We're doing this for festivals and awards kind of fodder. And I could see this, you know, coming up in you know in in not the major awards uh, award ceremonies, but I could see this coming up in the the lower key ones, your more indie ones, your more art house ones. I could see this getting mentioned. Are you um are you feeling okay? Because you haven't said a single bad thing about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I did briefly think we were getting a, a, re- a you know, reboot of that uh, Angelina serial killer movie. Then it turned out that was taking lives, not past lives. So you know, I'm allowed to be disappointed on that. Brilliant. Well, if you want to uh, make your own mind up and watch Past Lives, it is out in cinemas from today. Right, we have got two brand new movies to talk about still. Uh, we can look at The Nun 2 in just a bit and also Man on the Run as well. So stay right where you are. We'll be back in a second. So, hello and welcome back to Off Screen. We've got two more movies to look at. Let's carry on with The Nun 2 now. We are... Going back to 1956, in France, and a priest is murdered. Van Connor, it's over to you. Right, so are you aware of the, the first one of The Nun? Vaguely, yeah, yeah. So this is part of the Conjuring cinematic universe. You know, you have the Conjuring movies, there's uh, Conjuring, Conjuring 2, and Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, which is the third one. I think we are getting a fourth one on the way. We've had two Annabelle movies in the meanwhile as well, and The Curse of La Llorona, there's also The Nun and now The Nun 2. So the first Nun took place in 1952 in Romania and was about this curse of, you know, the evil, you know, creepy nun. Uh, the two characters from that movie were also the survivors and they've sort of walked away. We had a priest and, and a nun who solved the paranormal mystery of The Nun. We've now got the sequel, which takes place four years later in France and the events of Romania have become the subject of legend. You know, they've become sort of church legend. There is the story of, oh, this this curse befitted this convent and this priest and a nun turned up and they managed to stop it using the blood of Christ. You know, he then died and, uh, well, he, 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 oh, so he went on to the Vatican and got an elevated position and no one ever knows what happened to the nun. And we all get told this because we're seeing it from the perspective of said nun, the returning Tysa Farmia who, incidentally, in reality, is the younger sister of the female lead of the main Conjuring movies, Vera Farmia. She just has a very, very cute younger sister, who's exactly as good an actress, it turns out. And uh, so, however, our nun has been living in relative secrecy. Sister Irene, as she calls, she lives in relative, relative anonymity. She has a new sort of wayward sidekick played by Storm Reed, an American nun who has come to, been sent over during the war for the convent. And uh, the Vatican come to her one day and say, the nun is back. We've now, we've now got this spate of random deaths throughout the church, sweeping across Europe, and it seems to be this nun that you took down the last time. The only thing is now, the father from the first movie, who we promoted, well, he's dead. So you're the only person left who knows how to deal with it. So they send Sister Irene along to, on this investigation through Europe that all, of course, leads to uh, a girls' boarding school in France, 
to try and deal with the threat, taking along involuntarily her young American psyche. I've got a clip for you. I saw none. Valak is a demon who was once an angel, who was punished by God and has returned for you. And for what you hold most dear. So basically, then, this is a kind of uh, sister act Harry Potter mix of the two together, but with many more scary, horrifying parts. I, I hope that was the pitch meeting. I really do. <laughs> sister act meets Harry Potter. I mean, I will say, if we go with the sister act thing, I will say this automatically becomes my second favourite nun sequel, but there's not exactly a lengthy list for that one. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Sister Act 2 tops every time. But, uh, yeah, this is this is very much a nuts and bolts horror movie, but it's made to the standard of the Conjuring series. And the Conjuring series, they don't phone in the Conjuring movies anymore. They're, they're well-made movies. Like You've got to give them that. And whatever you think of the Conjuring movies, they are well-made. Incidentally, I think it qualifies as the second most financially successful attempt at a cinematic universe after only Marvel. So... Yeah, not to be wow. not to be sniffed out. Yeah, not to no. Because they make these things for dirt cheap, and they're huge box office draws. Like that Conjuring label carries some serious weight. Performance-wise, you know, Tysa Farmia, great. She was the first time around as well. You've also got uh, Jonas Bloquet returning as in the first movie they called him Frenchie, but here he's kind of they named him at the end of the movie. He's now uh, Maurice. And if you know the mythology of the Conjuring series, this creates a bit of an issue with suspense for the movie because we know he turns up in the very first Conjuring movie in the 1970s this is the 1950s so it kind of removes a bit of suspense that you know this character has to wind up there and it is worth noting that they do hark that there is a post credits that you know kind of does some narrative thread tying for us on this so do stick around like through the credits there is some say some thread tying going on in the post credits um also, a face that I hadn't seen in a long time, Anna Popplewell turns up in this as uh, the, uh, the the token, I think she's Irish, actually, I was just going to say British, but uh, t- token, uh, you know, token Westerner uh, teacher who's in for the in, in for the draw, brought along for the, the scares here. Anna Popplewell, best remembered as the older, one of the, one of the older Pensieves from the uh, Narnia movies that Disney tried churning out 15 years ago. But uh, I, I forgot. I didn't know she was still acting. Was amazed when I saw her in this. But yeah, this this goes for it on the production level, same as these movies always do. All about that atmosphere. All about that dread. Some great scares. There's some some nice some nice effective jumps in there. There's a wonderful sequence involving a magazine stand. You know, an old fashioned, you know, uh, French magazine stand with all the magazines held behind wire. Where the yes. Yeah, the pages start blowing open and showing different imagery and things like that. Really well done, but. But that is where this kind of lives and dies. Like these movies do live and die on look how good the set pieces, because we're not turning up to these at this stage for the performances. We're not really turning up to these, you know, for the story so much as you know we're showing it. We want a good old fashioned ghost story. We want you to give us some frights, and it's a nun. It's a, it's a scary nun. So that's not difficult to get right because there's something inherently scary about you know nuns and the Vatican and all this. There's, there's a creepy element to that. Uh, brilliant opening to this movie as well. Actually, you know, I I, I love a good uh, horror movie opening sequence. 
you know, you look at, for instance, Scream as one of the all-timers, for instance, with Drew Barrymore being chased to the house. Uh, this, this has a priest being, uh, you know, burned alive in his own parish, uh, which is just wonderfully done. Just absolutely, just masterfully done. Uh, it's directed by Michael Chavez, who gave us uh, The Curse of La Llorona, a previous one of these, that uh, was kind of a stealth entry. They, they made this horror movie that uh, they were just putting out. It was, it was a random standalone thing. And then the week before it was released, they went, actually, surprise, it's a Conjuring spinoff. And he's, he's come from that. He did one of the Paranormal Activities one, maybe I think it was the Ghost Dimension. So he's he's an up-and-comer in this. He's making a name for himself quite quickly as a sort of journeyman horror director. But that journeyman element that he, he brings to it does not detract from his actual skill. He does seem to know how to put these things together. Like, on a nuts-and-bolts level, this is really well done. And say, even though you're not there for the performances, Tysa Farmia more than sells it. And, you know, just really great, really well done. Really great time. I'd say nothing revelatory, but, you know, standard three-star three star horror romp with some decent shocks in it. Why not? Does, does the nun have, like, magical powers that you can see in use, or is it a lot more kind of cloak and dagger? Uh, yeah, she can pull you towards her and things like that. She can make things move, stuff like that. She can yeah. you know, vanish and then reappear behind. Standard horror movie demon stuff. You know what it is. It does sound pretty good. I, I quite fancy a look at this. Uh, the Nun 2, if you fancy it, it's in cinemas from today. None now, um, do none harder. <laughs> yeah. Um, the last movie we're going to chat about this time round is the one I'm most looking forward to. So we're going to talk to Van in a second to see what he thought of Man on the Run in just a minute. So stay right where you are. We'll be back. Hello and welcome back to the show. Okay, our final movie to discuss with Van, who has, uh, of course, already seen it, is Man on the Run. So um, this is, from what I can make out, uh, just basically to do with money. <laughs> it's a simple, simple discussion to have to be had. It's all about money that went missing or got misspent or something happens to it. I mean, I don't know. I'll leave it to you. Yeah, Man on the Run, new documentary from Cassius Michael Kim, and it's, it's about it's about uh, the one M, uh, the one MB one MDB because I keep seeing it written down thinking it's IMDB one MDB uh, fund, which is uh, basically the Malay it's a Malaysian infrastructure fund, and the story was that Malaysia had put billions into this the fund to basically you know develop you know Malaysian infrastructure and, and basically build a portfolio for the country. And that uh, this guy comes into the mix with the brilliant name Joe Lowe. And, and I, I just, it never gets less fun to say Joe Lowe. Honestly, he sounds like an R&B singer, doesn't he? Joe uh, it, Lowe. It really does. And that was his real name, I'm assuming. And that was his real name. Right. Who becomes the sort of face of this. Doesn't have an official position with the fund. He becomes the, the de facto face of this. And over time... People start to notice irregularities with this fund. This money's going here and this money's going there. Why are you investing in that? Why are you investing in this? How do you explain this amount of money? And before you know it, the country of Malaysia is investing in Martin Scorsese movies and funding The Wolf of Wall Street. And Jolo starts throwing extravagant parties in Las Vegas where he's paying ludicrous personal appearance fees for all these celebrities to turn up and party with him. And before you can imagine it, obviously, there's a scandal involved. Have a listen. This one gets wild. We put together the largest international corruption case in the history of Justice Department. They used the money to pay gambling debts at Las Vegas casinos. 
the Bombardier jet. Hundreds of millions of dollars into the Wolf of Wall Street production. Jolo never had any official role, but he's always seen with the Prime Minister. He was trying to create a fictional backstory for himself. Surrounded by the likes of Leonardo DiCaprio and Paris Hilton, Jamie Foxx. He had a little bit of a crush on Britney Spears. Paid her a million dollars to pop out of a birthday cake. Whoa, he had some serious cash. Oh, you don't know the half of it. The amount of money this man funneled was in the billions. Like, it really was. We're wow. talking about just God-level embezzlement, like, and a lifestyle that you or I could just couldn't imagine. Like, to have spent the money that this guy funneled away, you, we couldn't do it in our lifetimes. Like, it, it would be near impossible for us to actually manage this. It's... Uh, it's a hell of a one. We did that one <clears throat> uh, billion dollar heist uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, yeah. that, that tread very similar water to this. And I think the FBI refers to this as the largest kleptocracy case in history. Um, you got to remember, a lot of this is done pretty much in the light of day. And it's done with the sign-off of the Malaysian Prime Minister at the time, uh, Najib Razak, I think his name was. And when you get to... I say, it, it's a story. It's a, it's a well-put-together documentary, very stylish, very slick. Um, I, I'd say... Maybe not cinematic enough to necessitate like a trip to the cinema or anything, but definitely the kind of thing you see on telly for us, you'd be quite blown away by. I mean, there's no no three identical strangers or anything like that. Uh, but I say fascinating stuff, slickly put together, hell of a story. But the the thing to talk about with it is just the insanity of it, the absolute lunacy of it. I mean, <clears throat> putting aside the absolute just bonkers level. Uh, of the uh, of the whole Wolf of Wall Street thing. I mean, you've got this guy just posing on the red carpet with Leo and Scorsese. Mad. And the story that they, you know, Scorsese and DiCaprio genuinely thought that they were, they were going to have their slate paid for for years by this. Because, I'll say, this guy was hiding in plain sight. He, I mean, DiCaprio is on record in this documentary as having asked, are we sure the money's clean? And, you know, him being told, yeah, yeah, it's all good, just go with it. Like he he thought there was something odd about this. Uh, Jamie Foxx, there's clips of Jamie Foxx on talk shows bragging about you know partying with this guy. He's basically he was a sort of he, he bought friends effectively. He paid for celebrities to spend time with him effectively. As you heard in the clip, you know a million dollars for Britney to pop out a birthday cake. Although as we now know, odds are Britney herself did not see a lot of that million. You know what I mean? I mean, I mean, pretty much. We can be reasonably sure that, you know, Daddy was taking his, uh, his cut of that more than a bit. Um, but the, the most bizarre part of this for me is Miranda Kerr. You know Miranda Kerr? The model? Yeah. Miranda yeah. Kerr? Yeah. He, he really had a thing for Miranda Kerr. And it gets oh. explored in some depth in this, uh, in this documentary. He and didn't pay her a million quid to pop out of his bed, did he? Did he? He paid her a lot more than a million quid, and popping out of a, a popping out of a bed would have been more physical effort than I'm willing to bet she put into anything she actually did. Uh, ab Whoa. Absolute lunacy. What's real? The real kicker in this, I think, more than anything, is is learning um, the distancing that a lot of the parties involved have uh, put into effect with this documentary. I mean, we are told, like very specifically, at the end who did and didn't take part in it, and also what their statements regarding the events depicted were and to be honest they're worth the documentary on their own because <laughs> wow i mean 
Some, some publicists really did want to fling themselves out of windows when they were getting emails for this documentary. Put it that way. Uh, from the way that it's stated, you just know some publicists were thinking, do I really want to work in this industry anymore? Because uh, these emails these emails are uh, really giving me pause. It was, it was very much one of those. The documentary itself, though, I think is quite fascinating stuff. And Jolo as a character, like I can see this, this will get fictionalized at some point. Like I yeah. see this. We said this about the Billion Dollar Heist one as well. You could see there being a narrative feature in this, like a true crime thriller in this. And I could actually see this going the same way, sort of a, a catch-me-if-you-can, funnily enough, because Leo, like a sort of catch-me-if-you-can-like story or a, um, uh, uh, what was the, uh, the the influencer one on Netflix with Anna Klumski, the... The Anna one. Inventing Anna. Oh, Inventing Anna, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which was very good. I'd watch that again. Something like an Inventing Anna with this. It's just absolutely deranged. Well worth seeing. I don't know if you'd necessarily justify a full-blown you know, venture out to the pictures in this heat to see it. But, yeah. The bit I would be really interested in in this movie is Ooh. watching the intricacies on how he kind of laundered the money and moved it around. Do you get to see that? Does it does it explain that? Yeah, well, I mean, it does explain, but I think intricacies would be a push. I mean, <laughs> at, at one point, at one point, this dude literally gets the 1MDB fund to pay out a billion dollars, right? Sends it to a bunch wow. of other companies, a bunch of other subsidiaries, but 800 million of it goes to his own umbrella company, his own shell company. So he wasn't subtle about it. It's like Gold Tree or Open Palm or something like that. His own shell company. So he's actually wow. paying himself. I mean, they they say in the clip there, for instance, like, you know, this this guy, like, wasn't affiliated officially with this company. He just became the sort of RE Gold for it. He just became the sort of middleman face of this operation. But how the, did the he, level, the lifestyle... How did he, he end up funded. getting caught? Well... I say because it became an international thing. Once the FBI, once he started investing money in American companies and things like that, the FBI started getting involved. Right. And I say he was he was involved in companies in you know in, in London and New York and, like that. and it became this big, vast international you know operation to bring this guy down. I, I should I should preface his where I should say as well. Sorry, his his whereabouts are unknown. Like J Jolo is still out there to this day. Oh, like, we didn't we don't know, know where Jolo is. And here's the funny thing. Because this is something I did not know until this documentary. In the Malaysian court system, you cannot be tried and charged unless you are present. So he's never wow. been tried and charged. He's out there. And he's free as a bird. I mean, he's wanted, but he's not been charged with anything. He's, he's just out. They don't know. They, they have suspicions. There's a couple of cities they think he's in. But at one point, I mean, to give you an idea about you know how into hiding this guy goes, at one point he was ducking the authorities by going to the Arctic Circle because he had that much money that his deluxe yacht was also an icebreaker. As in literally one of those boats that just drives through the ice shells. One of those. Wow. He was just oh living goodness. it up in the Arctic Circle. I mean... There's running away, but I don't know anyone that would run away to the Arctic Circle. I mean, that's that's <laughs> next level. That's really not wanting to get caught. Uh, yeah, at no, the very I, least, there's a Netflix series in this down the line, but I could see this. Get, this will get the narrative treatment at some point. Just absolutely lunatic story. 100%, yeah. What, as they say, you couldn't write this, really. I mean, it sounds really, really good. Um, I bet Adam McKay my... could. 
Well, it's on my watch list. Um, and if it's on yours, it is in cinemas from today, Man on the Run. Uh, so in a couple of weeks, we will be back. Um, let's talk through some of the movies we're going to be looking at in, uh, in two weeks. So Dumb Money. Yes, Dumb Money. This is the GameStop movie. Do you remember the GameStop scandal a couple of years ago yeah. where the people were inflating the stock of games? This is, this is that as a narrative feature. Um, Brilliant. Featuring the likes of Paul Dano and Seth Rogen. And like, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, Shailene Woodley's cast. Yeah, it's a strange one. Didn't know this was coming. It's come out quite quietly as well. Uh, we've got the animated The Canterville Ghost featuring the voices of Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie in a couple of weeks as well. Uh, strange Way of Life, New Western with Ethan Hawke and Pedro Pascal in a couple of weeks. Uh, new Curzon movie, The Lesson. I mean, you don't even look that up beyond just knowing it's a Curzon movie. I'm sure that's fine. That'll, that'll be good, I'm sure. And, and I can't wait for this. What happens when you combine the star of the raid, 50 Cent, Jason Statham, and Megan Fox? You get the Expendables, baby. Expendables 4 is upon us. Or Expend 4 balls, as they're spelling it. But I'm I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) I was about to say, I do love the way that they've replaced the A with the 4. But um, Mm. but then it looks a bit odd. I love a a number title. I'm sorry, Tac 3 was a better title than Taken. And taking three, you know, three equalizer <laughs> would have been a better title than equalizer three. I've still not seen that, so maybe. yeah, yeah. So I'm looking forward to expend footballs. Right, we've got all of those to look forward to in two weeks from now. We won't be here next week, uh, but yeah, thank you for listening. We shall see you in two weeks on off screen. Until then, I've been Adam Ball, I've been Van Connor, and we shall return. <laughs> <laughs>